0: We're going to continue now. We're going to switch gears into hermeneutics. Remember what hermeneutics is, right? What is hermeneutics? Okay, Sue wasn't here last week, so she doesn't have to know. Everybody else has to know. What's hermeneutics? How to study the Bible. How to study the, Bible. the science and the art of interpreting Scripture, if you want to get fancy. Okay. <clears throat> Let's talk a little bit. We talked last week about the nature of the Bible, what kind of book it is. We said that it is a divine book and a human book, okay? Now, let's talk a little bit about where it comes from, and that let's look at Scripture's <coughs> own testimony. 2 Timothy three sixteen to 17. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Many of your Bibles say all Scripture is God-breathed. And that's a better translation. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God, and that means the person of God, that's regardless of sex, may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, as far as the origin of Scripture, when Paul says that Scripture is God-breathed, he's saying it. It's as if God spoke it. It's directly from his mind. Although God produced the biblical writings through the agency of human writers, every book in the Bible was written down by a human being. What they wrote is the word of God. So scripture is God speaking to us. Now it's not wrong to say that Paul says in the book of Romans, but Paul is the spokesperson for God. Okay, And what we're going to see in a few minutes is that sometimes the people who wrote Scripture were speaking for God and they didn't even know the meaning of what they wrote, which is quite fascinating. Okay, Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of bones, our soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Scripture is alive in the sense that it accomplishes God's goals as it works in the minds of men. Now, Scripture came from God through men, but it's not really a dead book. Because it's God's word, it does things. It transforms people. It convicts of sin. It does a whole lot of things. Isaiah fifty five, ten to eleven. I can't quote it exactly, but God says My word will not go out from my mouth and come back to me void, but will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. Okay? Scripture stands over us in authority. The philosophers have no right to judge the truth of God by their methods. They're wrong. They're looking in the wrong direction. Scripture stands over us. And Scripture is the ultimate standard of what is right and approved in the eyes of God. Now, I love this one. 1 Peter 1:10-12. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would, want, that would come to you, searching what, or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating, when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Now just stop there for a minute. Do you see what that is saying? It's saying that some of the people who wrote down prophecies about Christ had to study and search later and figure out what they were talking about. Now, I don't think it's true that all of Scripture is mechanically dictated in the sense that the writer went into a trance and just wrote like this without looking at the paper with his mind in idle. I don't think that's how scripture was produced, but some of scripture apparently was essentially dictated by God to the people who wrote it down because they didn't understand the meaning of what they were writing, or they didn't understand the referent of what they were writing, okay? It's not that the words were meaningless, but they didn't always know what the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. But they did know this. It was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which have now been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things which angels long to look into. Isn't that interesting? You may have heard that the meaning of a given scripture, let's say in the Old Testament, was what the first audience that heard it thought it meant. I don't think that was always true. I think sometimes the people who wrote it down and even the people who were the first ones who could read it didn't know what it meant. And those things were written down for the benefit of later generations, and that includes us, who would one day come along. Isn't that fascinating? Okay. In some cases, the human writers of Scripture did not know the meaning of what they wrote. Again, demonstrating that Scripture is whose word. It's God's word. Okay? In a case like that, you can't possibly say that it's the (coughs) human word, can you? got to be God's word because the human who write, wrote it didn't really know what it was about. Okay. 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation Some of your Bibles will say of any private origin, and that's probably a little better translation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Now here when it says no prophecy of Scripture, don't misunderstand what that's saying. That's not saying the portions of Scripture that are prophetic. It is saying a, a prophecy of Scripture is simply an assertion in the Bible. Nothing that the Bible says came from the human being who wrote it. It's not his personal idea. It's not his opinion. It didn't come by the will of man. Somehow, and we don't know how, God moved those people who wrote scripture to do it in such a way that what they wrote was God's word. Now, if you look at this little verb here, it says they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The verb that's used here is often used to describe how the motion of the ocean moves a boat. Okay, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's exactly what this is describing, but it is used in that sense. Somehow, the spirit worked through the circumstances, worked through the mind of the prophet in some mysterious way that we don't know, but we know that the result was what? What they wrote was, was God's word. Okay, I can't tell you how it was done, and I don't think Scripture really tells us. It simply tells us that it happened. Okay, prophecy of Scripture means whatever whatever scripture says. Okay? I've already said all the rest down at the bottom so I won't repeat it. Because it's God's word, we are obligated to what? Believe it and obey it. Okay. Well, that's that's some of the testimony of scripture about where it comes from. Now let's talk for a minute. What's in the Bible? What's in the Bible? Type of literature. Did we talk about genre last week? Okay. You remember that funny word? It means a kind of literature, a style of writing. Okay? What are some of the genre in the Bible? Well, there's narrative. Okay? Narrative is a story. You all know what stories are, right? The book of Genesis is a story. Legal literature. Laws. Okay? Leviticus. Deuteronomy good examples of law. History or chronicles, okay? You could say the book of Kings or the book of Chronicles, but the book of Acts is a book of history, okay? Very important book of history. Tragedy, the story of Saul. Who else in the Old Testament is a tragedy? Samson, right? You know, a tragedy is the story of a person who has a tragic flaw that leads to his undoing. In Saul's case, what was his tragic flaw? What do you think? Okay, he was impatient, he was disobedient, and he was proud. I kind of think that it's pride. I think most of what happened to him you can trace back to pride. He wanted to be honored in front of the people. Remember he said that? Okay. What was Samson's? tragic flaw. Mm -hmm. Women. (laughs) What was that? Lust. Yeah. Okay. Satire. Some people think the book of Jonah is a satire. Because what does the book of Jonah do? It makes fun of the Israelites. Here are the Israelites who know God. Okay? God calls one of them to go talk to the Ninevites and tell them, tell them about God and he doesn't want to go. God drags him kicking and screaming. He goes there. He does the job. When the people repent, he goes out and he has a temper tantrum in the desert. I think it's a satire. Okay, poetry. Obviously, the Psalms are poetry. There's lots of poetry in Scripture. Wisdom literature. Proverbs, Job, the book of James, a lot of people would say that's wisdom literature. Gospel. Gospel is considered to be a genre. You know why? Because there are enough examples of it that you can give it a type. Right? We've got four stories of the life of Christ. That's enough to create a category. So we call that a category. All right. Logical discourse. The epistles. You know, Paul's letters. They're very logical, they're very distilled. He's talking to you, he's telling you truth, he's telling you the implications of that truth. It's not a story, is it? It's not laws, it's not really the gospel, it's not a satire, it's somebody talking right at you and saying this is what you need to know, this is what you need to do. Okay, prophecy. There's lots of prophecy in scripture. Now again, we tend, when we hear the word prophecy, to think predicting the future. That's part of prophecy. The prophecy usually includes an indictment for bad behavior. It often includes a warning of judgment, a promise of future restoration, and some information about the future that's usually centered around who? Yeah, centered around Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament terminology, we would say the Messiah okay so those are oh an apocalyptic I put this in quotes because I'm not sure that I like that category but a lot of people use the term apocalyptic to describe a certain kind of prophecy like what's found in Ezekiel parts of Daniel parts of Zechariah the book of Revelation it's prophecy focusing on Messiah that has a lot of symbolism in it okay okay So these are some of the things that we have in Scripture. Okay, now we're going to shift gears. We're going to talk about the history of Bible interpretation. Eventually, we're going to get to the point where we discuss how we should handle Scripture. Okay, But before we get there, it's useful to look at how people have done it in the past, because we can learn from their successes and we can avoid their mistakes. Okay? So let's look at some of the history of Bible interpretation. There have been five basic methods that have been used in the history of Scripture in the time that the Bible or parts of it have been around. Now, the first one is literal interpretation. Some people today like to call it literary interpretation. And I think that's a good word because it reminds us that we're dealing with literature. And literature includes not only direct factual statements, but it includes wisdom statements, it includes figures of speech, it includes symbolism. Now, some people would say literal means it has to mean exactly what it says. Okay but we recognize that the Bible is literature and it has figurative language and it has symbols in it. Now, I think that falls within the term literal, properly understood, but if you say literary, that helps you to remember that it's got those qualities of literature. Okay, allegorical interpretation. We'll talk about this in a few minutes. Traditional interpretation. We're going to come back to all these in just a moment, so... Stick with me. This is just an overview. Rationalistic interpretation. You might be able to guess what that is because we've been talking about rationalism. And subjectivistic interpretation. Okay, let's look at each one of these briefly. Okay, literal interpretation is also called normal or literary interpretation. It assumes that the Bible works like regular human speech, like the kind of speech that we all use all the time. It has Ordinary conventions of human literature, and in order to interpret it, we have to treat it like human literature. It recognizes their figurative language. It recognizes the Bible has some unique kinds of literature in it. Okay? But, in addition to those human qualities, we keep in mind that scripture is inspired and inerrant, and those are two qualities that are distinctly what? They're unique, they're distinctly divine, okay? They come from the fact that it's a book from God. And we can use those as aids to interpretation. And we'll see how this works out. Okay. Allegorical interpretation views the text of Scripture and its plain surface meaning as a vehicle for a hidden, more profound spiritual meaning that is below the surface. Okay? Allegorical interpretation attaches highly specific meanings to seemingly unimportant details of the text. Now let me read you some examples of allegorical interpretation Of the Old Testament. There was a guy named Philo who lived, oh, roughly a century before Christ. Philo said that Sarah and Hagar represent virtue and education, Jacob and Esau represent prudence and folly. Jacob, resting his head on the stone, you know, when he sleeps on the rock, spoke of the self discipline of the soul. And the seven-branched candelabra in the tabernacle in the temple represent the seven planets. Okay? Um, let's see. Got a few other ones. There's a guy named Clement. He was a guy who wrote after the New Testament was written. He taught that the Mosaic prohibitions against eating swine, hawks, evils, I'm sorry, eagles, and ravens In Leviticus, represent, respectively, unclean lust for food, injustice, robbery, and greed. Where the heck did he get those ideas? Not from Scripture. What's that? Ethnocentricism. Ethnocentricism, um, Fanciful thinking. Okay? See, the problem with allegorical interpretation is that everybody comes up with a different interpretation. There's nothing in the text to guide the assigning of meanings to these seemingly insignificant things. Philo had a meaning for every number. You know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, all the way up to ten. They all had special meanings instead of just being numbers. Okay? Now, let's see. How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Could you understand Pilgrim's Progress? It was very easy to understand, wasn't it? You know what? Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. It was designed as an allegory. So the things that are in that story have special meanings, and it's obvious what they are. Okay? To interpret Scripture allegorically is not the same as to interpret an allegory allegorically. Allegories were designed to be interpreted as allegories, just like comic strips were designed to be interpreted as comic strips. But when you take something that isn't an allegory and treat it like an allegory, then you get in trouble. Because you're doing what? You're using the wrong set of rules. Okay? The writer wrote expecting you to use the right rules to interpret what he wrote. If you use the wrong set of rules, you're going to come up with what? the wrong meaning. You know, we've all heard these stories about how the Germans had these special code machines that they would send messages with during World War II. If you didn't have the code machine, or if you had the code machine and it had the wrong program in it, you'd come up with the wrong answer, right? Okay, well, we have to use the right code machine. We have to use the right program. We need to interpret Scripture according according to the appropriate Genre, the rules that go with it. Okay, traditional interpretation. This is more about authority, really, than method. It's the idea that the correct meaning of the text is found in the teachings of some authoritative body. Now, the obvious example is what? The Roman Catholic Church. They say that Scripture means what we say it means. And they don't generally encourage their people to study Scripture. Why study it when you can find the meaning in a dogma book? Okay? Um, This approach always raises the question, whose interpretation is authoritatively correct? And it implies that there are infallible human interpreters of Scripture. But if you look at the history of the church, you'll find out that they've changed their minds. So... I don't think traditional interpretation is a sound approach. Rationalistic interpretation asserts the supreme authority of human reason over the Bible. This is sounding like something we've seen already, right? Okay. If our minds can't explain the supernatural, if we can't explain why that herd of 5,000 pigs ran down the hill and jumped in the water and drowned themselves, we have no way to explain that does that mean it didn't happen people who use this would say yes that means it didn't happen but how silly is that just because we don't know the mechanism doesn't mean it's not real you know why did why did the planets circle the Sun for thousands of years before Kepler came along and figured out how it worked because they were obeying the laws of God okay? and the fact that nobody knew why they did it that way didn't make the law of gravity not exist okay? again, rationalistic interpretation it really is silly okay? it's important to note that this is really not so much a view on method again, it's like traditional interpretation it's really an issue of authority they're saying that the mind has authority over what's in the book And that just doesn't work. Now, subjectivistic interpretation says that what's important is how you respond to the text. Now, the neo-Orthodox guys, we talked about them last week, they kind of like this idea. The meaning is not really found in the text because the text doesn't really mean anything by itself. Meaning is created when you encounter Scripture. And whatever you happen to think is what it means is what it means for you. Okay? So the words of Scripture don't need to be literally true if the result of reading them is the desired effect, faith. Now, this is what people who call themselves Christians, who hold the Bible in high regard, but who hold this view would say. They would say... Even if Jesus didn't cast demons out of people, if you read the story of Jesus casting demons out of people and that convinces you that Jesus was powerful and that inspires you to trust him, then the Bible has done its work. Now, there's a problem. How could we know that the Bible has done its work of producing the desired effect of faith in you if we don't know that Scripture is designed to produce faith in you? The only way we know it's designed to produce faith in you is by what it says. But if somebody else comes along and reads it and he says, no, the purpose of Scripture is to make you put on a zebra suit. Well, what are you going to say? Right? A lot of these things are self-defeating. Can you see that? They really are. The more you try to deny absolute truth and the more you try to escape from the authority of God the more you get in trouble. Okay, now we're going to talk about the history of Bible interpretation in terms of a timeline. We've looked at kinds of interpretation Now, I want to very briefly go through about 200 BC all the way down to today where we live and see how it was done. In the pre-Christian era, roughly two centuries before Christ, A lot of the Jews lived in Alexandria and Egypt. That's where we know most about how they were handling the scriptures. The Greeks had invented allegorization. Now, if you've read any of the Greek literature about the gods, the gods are in there doing all kinds of crazy things. They're fighting, they're murdering each other, they're stealing each other's wives, they're committing homosexual acts. And the Greeks had this literature, it was their national treasure, but sometimes it was kind of embarrassing. So they invented allegorization, and they'd say, well, when it says he was committing a homosexual act, it really meant that he was planting apple trees in the backyard. I just made that up. Okay? But they would do things like that. Okay? Now, the Jews who were living in Alexandria, that was the center of Jewish learning and education at that time, they were living shortly after the scriptures had been translated into Greek. The Greeks were allegorizing, so they started allegorizing the Old Testament. Okay? It was a very nice way to inject your own ideas into the text. It was also a very nice way to avoid the clear meaning of Scripture. You know, Scripture said you shouldn't do this, but you want to do it, well, you allegorize it, and now you can get away with it. Okay? Very handy. We should use some of this. Now, okay, around the time of Jesus in Jerusalem there were two schools of interpretation, the loose interpretation of Hillel and the strict interpretation of Shammai. Now, these roughly corresponded to the way the Sadducees handled Scripture and the way the Pharisees did, but it it wasn't really that tight, okay? In those days, they weren't using a lot of allegorization. They were both basically literal. If you look at the way that Jesus challenges the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests with Scripture... He always treats the scripture as if he takes it literally, right? That seems to be evidence that they did the same thing. The problem was not that they didn't handle the scriptures literally. The problem was that they didn't really want to see what was there and respond to it properly. Okay? Now, this, do you know what the diaspora was? The diaspora is the scattering of the Jews, okay? Okay? It started in 722 BC when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom. It was carried on more in 586 when the Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom. And then basically the Jews were spread all over the Middle East, you know, as far as India. Some of them ended up in Greece, in Turkey. Jews are everywhere, okay? Um, the diaspora never really ended. Most of the Jews settled down where they were. Some of them went back to the land, but most of them stayed spread out. Now, Alexander the Great came along around 330 BC. He conquered the known world. Greek culture became the main thing. The Jews took in Greek culture. They picked up allegorization, like we said earlier. So this is kind of a repeat of what we saw earlier. But again, we're sweeping through it in time. Now, the early church fathers around the time of Christ's death up to 200 AD they didn't seem to have a well defined method of interpretation they used literal and allegorical interpretation there was a lot of allegorical interpretation in their efforts to show how the Old Testament predicted Christ okay? at least they were motivated by something positive but it wasn't always good now by the time we get to a.d. 200 things are starting to polarize okay down here in egypt we've got alexandria and then we've got antioch you know antioch the place where the church sent paul and barnabas out from okay the believers up in antioch became dedicated to very literal interpretation very much like what we do the believers down in antioch used a lot of allegorization And that's kind of the way things were. Now, after the early church period, basically A.D. 200 until today, both allegorical and literal interpretation have been used. As the Roman Catholic Church grew in power, traditional interpretation became more and more important because this is what the church said, and you've got to believe it. Now, the reformers came along, and they reacted to the false interpretations of the Roman Catholic Church with, with regard to certain things. How do you get saved? You know, Is there such a thing as indulgence? Can you pay to get your dead relatives out of purgatory? Does purgatory even exist? And the way they attacked those doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church was that they re- retreated to literal interpretation. They went back to what had been used earlier, okay? Now, in the post-Reformation era, the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, both of which in some ways came out of the Reformation. Let me just stop for a second here. Do you know why the scientific revolution occurred? The scientific revolution occurred because the idea that an intelligent creator God who runs his universe according to law, physical law, comes from the Judeo-Christian mindset in scripture. Okay, The reformers brought that idea onto the table of Europe and people began to believe it. And they began to give up alchemy, which was the effort to use magic and spells, to turn lead into gold, and they said, now, this isn't the way to make it in the world. We're going to start doing science. And he had people doing astronomy and physics and chemistry and anatomy and music. And they said, the world doesn't run on magic. The world is orderly because the God of the Bible designed an orderly world. And if we'll just take the time to figure out the order that he put in the world, we can learn to predict what's going to happen when we try something that's never been happened before. So strangely, the Reformation, the recovery of confidence in Scripture, handled by literal interpretation, led to the Renaissance, which was the rebirth of intelligent thought, And that led to the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment was sort of a step backwards because in the Enlightenment, in the Renaissance, people had a high view of God. In the Enlightenment, mankind started getting a fat head, and he started coming up with a lot of these wacky philosophies that we've been looking at, okay? But the reason that we live in a technologically complex and capable society is basically that people became convinced that the God of the Bible runs the universe and since it's orderly we can figure out how it works and we can manipulate it and we can do things we never did before because we expect that it will obey the rules you know conservation of energy, conservation of momentum, the most fundamental laws of physics it was the discovery of those things that you know led Newton and Kepler and all those other physicists to figure out how the world works. But nobody ever would ever have had confidence that the world could be understood that way if they didn't believe that the God of the Bible had created the world in an orderly fashion. Kind of neat, isn't it? Okay. After the Reformation, the Renaissance, and the Enlightenment saw the rise of rationalistic and subjectivistic interpretation. This is basically humanism going to seed. Okay, Early humanism saw human beings as being valuable because they were made in the image of God. Later humanism said, what do we need God for? We're great just like we are. Okay. Now, in some ways the modern evangelicals emphasis on literal interpretation is a retreat to the Reformation. Because in the 1800s and the early 1900s, people went away from literal interpretation. They didn't really trust scripture. So again, what are we? We are reactionaries. Okay? Nothing wrong with that. All right. We got a couple minutes left. We might get through this. All right. Let's shift years again. What are we looking for when we when we attempt to interpret the Bible? What do you think? Truth. Okay? To know God's character? To know how to live. Okay, to know how to live. To know why we exist. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Purpose. Okay? Now all of that can be put into one big umbrella. We're trying to discover what God has communicated to us in the written word. Okay? The goal is not to put in there what we want to see, is it? The goal is to extract what is already there. And what is already there is what God has communicated to us. Okay? It's an objective thing. We are not, or we should not be, seeking to impose our ideas on the text we shouldn't even be starting out to discover how we should respond to it. Now, be careful here. I'm not disagreeing that Scripture tells us how we should live, but we need to interpret first and apply later. We often try to jump right to application when we don't really know what Scripture says, and you'll, we'll see some examples of how that can get us in trouble later. Okay? And we're not looking for something behind the text. Okay? The Bible is not a code book. The Bible is a revelation from God to man. Okay? An allegorical interpretation isn't the way to go after it. The Bible code isn't the way to go after it. You need to read it with common sense. Okay. Before we proceed, we need to settle three questions. And two of them we've already settled in our discussion of prolegomena. Is there such a thing as absolute truth? Absolutely. Okay? If someone ever says to you there's no such thing as absolute truth, you say, are you sure about that? Uh Uh-huh. Are you absolutely sure about that? Uh Uh-huh. You just made an absolute statement, but there's no such thing as absolute truth. You can't even deny the existence of absolute truth and do it in a meaningful way. Okay? Secondly, What is the nature of human language and can it communicate effectively? We just talked about this in the other class, right? Okay, third. And somebody brought this up last week. Is it possible for sinful human beings to interpret the Bible accurately? This is an important question. Okay? So let's look at that third one. Okay. The answer must be yes. At least in some cases and in the case of believers. We already talked about Isaiah 55, where God says, My word will accomplish the purpose for which I sent it. It will reveal me. We looked at 2 Timothy 3:16 to 17 which says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for these purposes so that you can be fully equipped. Okay? It can't possibly do those things if we can't interpret it accurately. That doesn't mean that we'll always interpret it accurately. There would be no point in the brain. Absolutely. what would the point be? Okay? Now, I'm not at all denying the important and vital work of the Holy Spirit in illuminating our thinking as we interpret Scripture. Okay? We've got to have that. Now, what I've said here is the answer must be yes in the case of believers. (laughs) What about unbelievers? Are you aware that a very large percentage of the Bible commentaries that you can get at a bookstore or in the library are written by unbelievers? A lot of them. A lot of them. Okay? For unbelievers, the answer is less clear. Okay? 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the truth must be spiritually discerned. Second Corinthians 4, 3-4, we looked at that already, that says that the minds of unbelievers are blinded by Satan, right? I think it's probably best to say that although unbelievers can sometimes understand what Scripture is expressing, they're powerless to respond to it properly unless the Spirit is at work. I think it is true that sometimes unbelievers read Scripture and they can tell you what it says. But then they're going to say, well, that's what it says, but I don't believe it and I'm not going to obey it. Okay? The goal of Scripture is not just to reveal God, is it? It's to reveal God and in the process to transform us. Okay? So, I'm not comfortable saying that unbelievers can never understand Scripture. I think it's safer to say that sometimes they can, but until the Holy Spirit is at work to transform them, they cannot respond to it in the way that it was designed to cause them to respond. You see what I'm saying? Okay. All right. Note the fact that sound interpretation is possible doesn't mean that it always happens. just because we could do it doesn't mean that we always succeed all right can you give me four more minutes okay and I think we'll finish up here's a question where is meaning found okay there are four ideas that people have battered around meaning is found in the intent of the author it's what the author meant to say that's where the meaning is secondly meaning is found in the text itself Third, meaning is found in the societal structures and human roles to which the text was forced to conform when it was written. How many of you think that's it? None of you. Good. (laughs) Meaning is found in the mind of the reader. You think that's it? No. The last two are no-brainers. They're washouts, right? What about one and two? Some people would say that the first two, meaning is found in the intent of the author and meaning is found in the text. Some people would say that these are the same. I had a professor in seminary, and I went round and round about this. He said meaning is found in the intent of the author, and I said, no way. It's found in the text. And we never did come to agreement on that. Um, Okay, the view that the meaning is in the text, I think, is the classical understanding. It recognizes that texts retain their meaning even when the author is inaccessible or dead. What in the world good would a will be if you have to have the guy who wrote it around to tell you what it meant? That'd be stupid, right? Okay. This view recognizes the key concept that language has the capability to store meaning or ideas. Think about that. Language can store meaning. Language can preserve ideas. Isn't that fascinating? You know, I don't know much of the history about it, but there's a really interesting story about how the Arabs discovered algebra and then that was lost for centuries and then somebody found their books and rediscovered algebra. And for all those years, that information was stored in those texts and nobody even knew it was there and then somebody found them and they rediscovered the foundation of modern mathematics. The people who figured it out were dead, but the information was in those texts, okay? Now, there has to be a continuity of relationship between the guy who wrote the text and the people who read it. That continuity comes through culture and language, okay? There has to be enough of that to enable the reader to perceive the stored meaning that the writer put in the text. We'll come back to this in a couple of minutes. Okay? Now, the idea that meaning is found in the human author's intent is a more recent idea. It's often associated with higher criticism, and I've got some stuff on higher criticism in your notes, but I'm not going to talk about it here. Okay. I think this idea is flawed for several reasons. Number 1, it's impractical. You can't always interview the author. Number 2, it's false at least in some cases. Remember 1st Peter 1 said that the prophets didn't know what they were talking about when they wrote about the coming of Christ. Okay? So it obviously wasn't in their intent. It might have been in God's intent. And I think this view ultimately is skeptical about the effectiveness of Scripture. The people who use this idea often will say, well, Paul meant to say this, but he didn't really say it. But we can figure out what he meant to say by looking at what he said somewhere else. I think that's silly. I think Scripture means what it says, and it says what it means. Okay? And we have access to the meaning in the text. I'm going to finish with two illustrations. Okay? I don't know. I may have used this, did I use the rocket ship one last week? Okay. Let's suppose we send some guy on a mission to Jupiter, and he goes off in his rocket ship, and he gets out and he's just about ready to land, and he comes down with liver cancer. (laughs) And he diagnoses himself and he knows he's going to be dead in six hours. So he makes a little videotape, he puts it in a rocket, he points the rocket at Earth, fires the thing, and he's dead in six hours. Ten days later, the rocket ship lands on Earth. They open it up, there's a videotape in it. Take the videotape home, mama sticks it in the video machine, and they watch this guy talking to them saying, I love you. By the time you get this, I'm going to be dead. And all the things he's got to say. Okay? Where's the meaning in that message? Where is it? Where is that meaning found? It's not, in his words, right? it's not in his head, right? He's dead. It's in the, it's in the words. It's in the tape. Okay, it's in the language that's there. Okay. Now, that illustrates that meaning is found in the words, not in the intent of the author. Does anybody know what this thing is? Can you tell what it is? It's the Rosetta Stone. You guys are good. Okay, the Rosetta Stone was discovered by Napoleon's soldiers. It's a big piece. I think it's basalt. It's got hieroglyphics, Greek, and Demotic script on it. Okay? Have any, have any of you been to the Egyptian exhibit at the Museum of Art here yet? Okay, well, if you go there, and you ought to go, I plan to go, you're going to see lots of hieroglyphics. Hieroglyphics are very interesting language. It's a combination of pictographic and phonetic language. Nobody knew how to read it. They found this stone and somebody made an intelligent guess that what was written in here in hieroglyphics was the same as what was written in here and what was written in here. So I can't remember the guy's name, but this brilliant linguist went through and he basically counted words he said, well, this word appears seven times here and it appears seven times here. Therefore, those two words must be equivalent. And he went through and he analyzed the thing statistically and he figured out how to read hieroglyphics. Now, until he did that, all of that text that was inside the Egyptian tombs and in lots of other places was totally inaccessible to modern man. Its meaning could not be extracted. But its meaning was there all along what this thing did was it enabled modern man to establish continuity of culture and language with those people and then the meaning that was in those texts could be extracted okay and that's how we know a lot you know there are things like this that have happened with all kinds of ancient cultures okay The meaning is in the text. Now, in Scripture, what was in the mind of God was placed on the page. Okay? But if God expected us to go up there and interview him, he never would have bothered to do this. He's put it there to make it accessible to us. And so our goal in Bible interpretation is to find the meaning that's in the text. Okay. Any questions? I don't know if you're as tired as I am. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have spoken to us through your word. Thank you that you have provided the continuity we need to understand the ancient languages. We look forward to you helping us in the weeks ahead to know better how to handle your word. Please give us the courage to see what it says about us and to respond to it as your spirit guides us please give us your protection as we go home and your guidance through the week we pray through your son amen